You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. I'm Adam Rispin, Content Marketing Manager at Intercom. Welcome to the Inside Intercom podcast, a show all about learning how to build better products and businesses through conversations with leaders in the worlds of design, product management, startups, marketing, and more. This week, I'm excited to introduce a discussion between our Senior Director of Product Marketing, Matt Hodges, and Ilya Fushman. Ilya is currently a general partner at Index Ventures, where his portfolio includes the likes of Slack, Optimizely, CultureAmp, and even Intercom. But what makes Ilya's perspective so unique is they've seen both sides of the coin. Prior to joining Index, Ilya was the head of product at a little file sharing company called Dropbox. He led the charge on products like Dropbox for Business and the Dropbox platform during a hyper growth stage when the employee base grew from 50 to 1500. In his chat with Matt, Ilya explains the importance of building a product roadmap at an early stage. To take all these great ideas, you need to put them on a whiteboard and then you need to figure out what is the arc over which we do them. Don't do your you know, five-year vision on day one. How marketing can accentuate the efforts of your product team. The internal narrative and the external narrative around what you're doing, who the customer is, what the value is that you bring to that customer. Um, If you can make those two uh, very succinct and connected, I think it's an incredible alignment that drives focus, prioritization, and execution ultimately in the company. And how to approach making a platform play with your product. What I think people need to think about is what kinds of opportunities and value can I create for my users on top of the functionality that I've already built? Uh, And what is the most effective way for them to discover uh, those products and and get to use them? It's a wide-ranging chat about growing a vision and a team. And with that, let's hand things over to Matt in the studio. Ilya, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, You've had a really interesting career trajectory in that you had a run in the VC world, then you hopped over to Dropbox where you were head of product before arriving at Index, uh, who's actually a Dropbox investor and an income investor as well. Can you walk us through that journey and ultimately give us an understanding of what drew you out of working on product and back into venture capital? Sure, so it all actually started a while before that. Um, I did a PhD at Stanford in applied physics. I was trying to build a quantum computer, which was a lot of fun. I finished it and to me, the PhD was sort of the ultimate uh, product discovery process. So I've always loved building products. I realized though I liked putting products in the world that have real impact quite immediately. And so did a startup right after my PhD with some colleagues where we built the world's most efficient solar cell. It was also the world's most expensive solar cell. (laughs) We learned quite a few lessons there. And after that, I transitioned into venture capital for the first time at a firm called Coastal Ventures down at Sand Hill, just quite famous. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I learned a few things there. One was I I absolutely loved venture. I loved the opportunity to work with different companies, be hands-on, dive into different sectors, and relive this product discovery process over and over and over again. So I always wanted to be in venture eventually, but I also learned that to be effective in venture, you had to have experience. And I wanted to be a venture capitalist who'd been there, who'd done that, who'd learned a few things, and who'd seen scale. And so when the opportunity to join Dropbox early came up, it was a no-brainer. There I was, uh, I spent four years, from about 50 to 1,500 people. I've seen incredible things. There was an amazing journey. And at the end of it, I realized that I wanted to kind of do this over again. And so to me, the opportunity to join Index, uh, first and foremost, was what I really wanted to do, which is help people build new products, new businesses over and over again. 
The second aspect of it was um, that Index, as, as you mentioned, is a global firm, uh, and the San Francisco office opened up in 2011. So part of uh, what I was also excited about was building Index itself. Uh, and you know, Index, uh, you know, if you look if you look at our, our office, um, one of the things you'll notice is all of our conference rooms are named after famous explorers. And, and that's, to me, something that uh, I think embodies both index, but also the ethos of venture capital. Uh, and that's ultimately what uh, was the big driving decision for me. Awesome. Uh, makes a lot of sense. And we're going to get back to talking about your time at Index uh, towards the end of the episode. But I'd like to rewind a little bit and talk more about your time at Dropbox. Uh, you mentioned that you'd seen the company go from 50 to 1,500 people over the course of four years. Um, that's some pretty serious hyper growth. Um, and presents a number of challenges along the way. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about the composition of the product team and how that evolved over time as you guys grew. Well, the the very initial product team uh, way before I got there was basically the founders, uh, Drew and Arash. Uh, they uh, had conceived of, uh, I think, pretty much everything you could possibly think of building uh, throughout most of the history of Dropbox. In fact, um, I remember seeing a picture of them in their first office uh, with a whiteboard and they'd literally written down almost everything we'd, we'd kind of built at the end of the day and, and were thinking about building. Uh, the, I think as companies scale and, and as they go through these transitions and, and growth, um, first of all, everything changes. Uh, second of all, what you wind up doing is you wind up uh, bringing people to um, help extend uh, the existing team. So take the, the sort of the vision from that whiteboard or from uh, their heads and actually put it into practice. The product team started with a few a few people, uh, and we wound up adding more and more. We wound up uh, acquiring uh, lots of earlier stage companies where the founders had uh, product experience at bigger companies and came on board and joined the product team. We wound up taking folks who were great internally and promoting them into the product roles. And as we built more specialized products, uh, for example, the business product, we wound up bringing people with that expertise into the company. And so. The product team evolved with the scope and scale of the overall team and, and the scope and scale of the product itself. When we say product team, can you talk a little bit more about what that means and how the team was structured? Sure. So it, in really every team had gone through multiple evolutions and multiple restructurings. And in fact, we probably restructured everything every six months. Uh, we, uh, If you think about a product team, there's product management, there's design, there's obviously engineering, there's user research. There is uh, ancillary functions around analytics, and uh, we kept adding these over and over again. But at the beginning, it was really just a few product managers, a few designers, and, and a bunch of engineers. And what was some of the biggest challenges that you faced as the team grew? Well, taking a step back, uh, most early stage companies, as they grow, face uh, fairly common challenges. Some are obviously business specific, but the most common global challenges are a few. The first one is communication. So if you think about an early stage company, you are all sitting around one table in one room. You have one kind of hive mind. You can call across the room. Probably don't even need to call across the room. People already know what they need to do. As you grow and let's say you hit you know something like 50 people, uh, you still can still be in one room, but then you still you, you need to start communicating the sort of the value of what you're doing, the vision, the mission, you need to get everybody on the same page. As you get to 100, 150 people, you no longer have that, uh, that ability. And so the, th the first and foremost thing to realize is that communication is incredibly important. That information, the way it spreads in an organization is a diffusive process. So 
the management team that spent has spent all this time together from the get-go um, knows exactly what's important. They're all on the same page. But one level down, two levels down, people have no idea. And uh, the manifestation of that is if you walk around the company and you say, hey, wh what do you think is important? What do you think we're doing? At you know, a small scale, you'll probably get one answer. At 50 people, you might get two answers. But at 100 or 150 people, you'll probably get four or five answers. Uh, and uh, that's dangerous because ideally to hit your goals, to succeed in a rapidly evolving, fast-moving environment, you need everybody to be on the same page. So communication is the first one. The second one is um, really team. And uh, again, when you think about small companies, you have very few people. They need to be able to do everything. Uh, you can't have too much specialization unless you're in a very particular sector. But as you grow and evolve, you do need to have these specialized tasks. So in the beginning, you might have an engineering team that's uh, can do front end, back end, uh, pretty much everything, uh, mobile if they need to. But once you get big enough and you need somebody to really do an amazing job with mobile engineering, you kind of have to have that, that specialist expert. Uh, and what you need to do is you need to make sure that the team that you've had in the beginning that's been so focused on being kind of jack of all trades is able to bring in this kind of talent, able to incorporate it, and able to uh, make it successful. So communication, team, those are the two most important things, I think, that you need to watch as you scale. I'm, I'm glad you brought up communication, and it's uh, reassuring to hear that those are some of the challenges you'd faced at Dropbox. It's a challenge we're facing ourselves at Intercom, is we've more than doubled in size. Can you share some, any um, tips or advice on some of the things that you uh, implemented or instrumented at Dropbox that helped keep everyone aligned and focused on that one mission? So the, the first key to communication is communicating. <laughs> uh, and so, and so you need to find um, avenues and channels that are, uh, you know, good for your organization uh, and are effective for your organization. So one of the things we did at Dropbox and that was very successful uh, was an all hands. So we had a weekly all hands, and at that weekly all hands, we were incredibly open. Uh, we talked about everything that was going on. In addition to that, we had uh, daily emails with all the stats. Uh, we had a uh, very kind of open and information-driven culture. So the first key is communication. Companies do it in different ways. Um, I think you guys have an incredibly open culture, and companies like Slack have an incredibly open culture, uh, and companies like Optimize that I work with also do mm -hmm. kind of all hands and, and things like that. So I think you can use tools that, that help you. But then the question is, what do you communicate? Yeah. Uh, and so the first thing that you have to really understand is that you need a clear narrative that everybody in the company can understand and they can use to drive decisions. Mm -hmm. And that narrative has to come from the founding and, and executive team. You really have to agree on that. And everybody has to agree on it. You might change it, but for the time being, it has to be a universally agreed upon uh, set of principles, set of values, uh, and set of priorities. Yeah. And once you have those, uh, then you communicate those and then you tie everything else back to them. And I think if you have this consistent narrative, uh, then people can really understand the value uh, and choices that and the value of the choices that they make at every given step of the way, and how those tie back to what's currently important for the company. I think the the one the one caveat to that is I think people get really really hung up on getting it right. Yeah. Uh, you know, what if we get our mission wrong? What if we get our values wrong? What if we get our priorities wrong? I think that's actually not. A real issue. The, the most important thing is to have them. Yeah. Have values, have a mission, 
and have priorities. Uh, and those may change. Yeah. But if you have them, you can iterate. Yeah, I think the important thing there is being open and honest and uh, knowing that it's okay to change and adapt over time. Um, so it's not surprising that at that level and that speed of growth that you saw at Dropbox that things are constantly breaking. You mentioned you're constantly rebuilding and reorganizing the teams. Did that change how you planned your roadmap? And did you even have a roadmap when you first started? The, yeah, the roadmap is a great question. So <laughs> the first roadmap was obviously in everybody's head. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I think a big a big part of what the early product team has to do is extract the roadmap from people's heads and put it into some kind of writing. It can be as simple as an Excel spreadsheet. It could be a PowerPoint. It could be sticky notes on a whiteboard. Mm -hmm. That works really well, by the way, in the early stages. But um, first of all is is pull pull everything out. The second part of it is uh, organization and and kind of sequencing. Uh, And a big part of that, as I said before, is prioritization. So, and, and prioritization is very painful, especially in companies that are growing as fast as Dropbox or Intercom or Slack, where the world is your oyster. You've had all these ideas. You have all these opportunities. You want to build the platform, and you want to build the product, and you want to build the next product. Uh, it's easy to get overexcited. It's easy to get excited. So the that's where this kind of global narrative is really important, because um, you need to take all these great ideas, you need to put them on a whiteboard, and then you need to figure out what is the sto- what is the arc over which we do them. Don't do your you know, five-year vision on day one, yeah. right? Do your first part of the vision, the second part of the vision, and all the way through the fifth part of the vision. So that's that's probably the most critical thing for product teams to get right, especially at the early stage. Um, so what we did was pretty simple. We started with a few key initiatives. Uh, and typically, you know, what you do is you start with a company that looks a little bit like a primordial soup of a single team that's building the product and maybe it has a component of mobile and has a web component and has a server analytics component. And then you say, well, this doesn't work because to ship a particular feature, we need to get five product managers on board uh, and they all have to coordinate. So then you split up into something that looks maybe more like an infrastructure layer uh, and then verticalized product teams. And uh, you then pick those product teams to align to kind of the things you care about the most. So in the case of Dropbox, it was maybe the business side, the consumer side, and the platform. Yep. Uh, and then you typically would add something like a growth team to all of this, and that team sprinkles some magic. So um, all of these are evolutionary processes, but I think the key to getting them right is, again, getting everything out, prioritizing ruthlessly, uh, and then sequencing. Yeah, prioritization and focus is in, is just paramount. Um, I'm glad you mentioned platform as part of that as one of the areas that you'd focus on because we're going to get to that in a second. Uh, selfishly, though, as a marketer myself uh, and one that works very closely with the product team at Intercom, I'm really curious to hear from you how important do you think marketing is uh, in the product development process and how evolved should they be and when? I think marketing is actually critical and more critical than most people think about because when you ask most people, you know, what do you think about marketing? Well, they start thinking about blogging and, you know, maybe buying some ads and maybe doing some display and especially uh, kind of at the earlier stage is sort of poking around and trying out different things. To me, the most critical function of marketing, and I think where it really ties to product is, is understanding the customer and then telling a clear narrative that connects the internal discussion to the external discussion. So the internal narrative and the external narrative around what you're doing, who the customer is, what the value is that you bring to that customer, 
Um, if you can make those two uh, very succinct and connected, I think it's an incredible alignment that drives focus, prioritization, and execution ultimately in the company. And you know, I think uh, in many ways, in the particular case of Dropbox, we'd had the privilege of growing really, really rapidly without having to rely on more traditional marketing methods. In fact, some of the more traditional marketing really came about in, in trying to build and scale the business product. And so um, once we'd done that and built a, a really good uh, marketing function, that, that internal alignment really crystallized. You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Effective customer engagement means the right message is sent to the right person at the right time. See how to make it easy at intercom.com slash engage. All right, so we've, we've talked a lot about building a product at scale. Um, I want to get a little bit more focused now and talk specifically about building a platform. Um, one of the big bets made at Dropbox under your watch was the Dropbox platform. And so in your opinion, why was it so important at that time to let developers build on top of Dropbox? It, it wound up being very important, uh, but I don't know if we really realized how important it was in the beginning. In fact, the initial platform was built to support Dropbox's own mobile apps. So the initial version of the platform was very much self-serving in that right. we needed a set of APIs to build the iOS and Android apps. What made the platform very successful in the early days, which was actually the same reason that it was necessary for us to build our mobile apps, was the fact that mobile devices shipped without a file system. Right. And so if you were a developer that was building any kind of file experience and you were doing it on mobile, you had to effectively use Dropbox because we had the most content. And so that evolved into us building more APIs, uh, building more experiences for developers. But the true kind of value of the platform, I don't think really crystallized until we were able to connect the users inside of our applications with third-party apps. And I think if you take a step back and you think about what a platform really is, and especially in kind of our space, uh, to contrast it a little bit with services, uh, is a platform is a marketplace. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a multi-sided marketplace where it connects the buyers or users of products with the creators or sellers of those products. And the entity that owns the platform uh, needs to provide a few key pieces of value. The first key piece of value is obviously this connection. Because if you're a developer and you're choosing to allocate your time, you're going to spend that on a platform that's going to give you growth, it's going to give you customers, uh, and it's going to help you build your business. The second piece is there has to be something unique about why you would go through this channel. So it could be the users, it could be the tool set. Uh, so maybe they're kind of unique APIs. In our case, it was the access to files on mobile mm -hmm. devices. Um, and it could be content. In our case, that was the files. Uh, but there has to be some unique reason and some unique um, functionality that you can build as a developer on this channel that then helps you connect and acquire and retain users. So for us, um, there was a realization that um, for the users, this also presented unique value. Because if you, thought, if you think about what you could do with Dropbox, uh, it was an infinite number of things. You could uh, build experiences around consumer photos. You could build experiences around enterprise productivity. You could build experiences we hadn't even thought about. Uh, you know, people were using Dropbox to record videos from drones to save the black rhino in Africa and right. use it to, during disaster recovery and uh, in, in the Katrina disaster. And so there was a set of functionality that our users immediately wanted that we wouldn't build ourselves uh, and probably wanted that we couldn't even think of. And so then it was clear that we had to take a few key pieces 
of functionality. And these were editing of documents on mobile. These were creating documents on mobile uh, and things that people wanted to do with the files that it stored in Dropbox and get them experiences around that. So that's why we did the partnership with Microsoft, for example, right. and around Office. So if you think about building a platform, and I, I think you have to be very critically thinking about building a platform because it is a, a significant investment of resources. You have to take a step back and, and figure out what functionality do we want to provide to our users that we ourselves are not going to do? Uh, and if it's very critical and valuable, uh, then are there developers who are going to do a great job of it? Yeah. Uh, and then what kinds of APIs and data do we need to provide for them to be successful? And if you can get comfortable with all those three things working, uh, then you should build a platform. And I think it can be very successful. Uh, but if you can't, then I think you have to think about it pretty critically. Right. I think uh, one of the benefits um, that comes out of making that decision to invest in a platform is that it does allow you to focus on those core competencies that you have and allow others to build the things that you don't plan on building. Um, in that vein, who else in our product generation do you think uh, is doing this really well today? Well, I think at the startup company scale, I'd say Slack, I think, has done a phenomenal job. Um, they had actually built some of the early integrations themselves and uh, some of the first applications themselves. And so they've managed to make it a great experience. Mm -hmm. um, I think if you think about more you know, larger traditional companies, I think iTunes is an incredible platform. Mm -hmm. I think iOS, obviously, is an incredible platform. So is Android. Uh, and I'm curious to see what uh, companies like Microsoft wind up doing. Um, Salesforce, I think, is another example of a, of a platform that's created an ecosystem of applications around itself. So yeah, we, I think there are lots of great examples. But if you, uh, if you look at all of them, I think um, they all have something unique whether it's uh, functionality in terms of APIs or data, uh, and then they have massive scale that gives developers the confidence that they're going to be able to build a successful business on top of this platform. Yeah, that's really important. As it is a two-sided player, there's got to be that opportunity there for the developers to see a return on their investment on building on the platform. Yep. Zooming out a little bit, are we headed toward an era of rebundling? That's a great question. I think the era of unbundling was actually quite interesting and in that I think you've had the perception that by unbundling you can create a lot of focus and a lot of uh, growth for additional products that you might uh, bring to life. You know, I think one of the biggest examples there was, um, was always Facebook Messenger as a successful unbundling strategy. The thing that most people forget is that at the time when Facebook Messenger was unbundled, it already had probably hundreds of millions of active users. Right. And, uh, and so... The unbundling uh, strategy historically, I think, seemed like a great concept. But if you dig in deeper and you think about your ability to, A, create one successful product itself, which is pretty low, but let's say you did, and then B, get people to use that product, uh, it's actually very low probability. So you know, think about typical email open rates are in the 10% range, and yeah. maybe click-through and downloads eventually are another 10%. So you're, you're talking about a 1% kind of compounded probability that you can get a user of one of your products to use another one of your yeah, products. The odds aren't in your favor. The odds are not in your favor. So I think I think rather than thinking about it as kind of a rebundling, what I think people need to think about is what kinds of opportunities and value can I create for my users on top of the functionality that I've already built? Uh, and what is the most effective way for them to discover uh, those products and, and get to use them? So uh, I think the case of Intercom is actually quite fascinating, which is why I was drawn to, to the company in, in the first place. I think what started as a 
very bundled product and in itself had many kind of sub sub use cases of pretty much a similar the same product inherently mm-hmm. what you guys did that I thought was very genius was that you took that and instead of what I would call unbundling it uh, you made it uh, more easily accessible for different functions in an organization yeah uh, inherently the fund- foundational platform uh, is still the same and then you have some of these more customized use cases in the case of Dropbox the way we, I thought about it was we had an, a natural evolution from somebody using the consumer product bringing it with them to work and eventually upgrading to the business product so that was a, a clear path yeah um, so if you have these kinds of clear paths uh, I think you can take those shots on goal and you can get people to to use those products I think in terms of how to think about unbundling versus rebundling uh, what I would say is first and foremost I think you have to go back to this prioritization of what you want to build unbundling allows you to create more focused use cases but at the end of the day uh, you have to be thoughtful about how many investments you make at a given time and so I would caution people from unbundling too much and what I would really emphasize is building additional products that make sense either for the same user you already have or an adjacent set of users that's easily discoverable through your current user set. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but... For every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Looking back to your first stint in venture capital, um, how did the funding environment change uh, since you were gone? Well, the valuations really went up. <laughs> that was probably my first experience. Uh, I think, you know, back in uh, in the days when I was at, at Kosla, what you would call, what, what you would now call a seed investment was probably a Series A. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of that is driven by the availability of capital. Uh, there are, there's a lot of uh, money that is looking for higher return, higher risk investments. And so, uh, I think there's a there's a natural uh, sort of supply and demand dynamic, which is giving people the ability to raise more money, higher valuations, potentially uh, you know at, at different stages uh, than they would have had the ability to raise that before. Um, that said, I also see uh, just a, a lot more interesting ideas and entrepreneurs. What I see today is that it's a lot easier to start companies. 
the tool sets there, platforms like Amazon Web Services, Google Compute, Stripe. Uh, Azure, Stripe, uh, all the building blocks are there. It's never been cheaper, easier, faster to start a company. You have global market access through the app stores. Most companies, you know, even without localizing, uh, wind up getting you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 percent of the users internationally if they start in the U.S. Uh, we see companies in Europe that make the hop here much more quickly. So while there is more capital and while the valuations are a little bit higher, um, I also think that the opportunities are bigger. Right. Makes a lot of sense. And, you know, more ideas means more products out there and more opportunities to invest. Um, and so much is celebrated about product-first or even design-first companies. Um, and from what I understand, it's one of the big, bigger reasons why you chose to invest in Intercom. So when you look at a potential investment opportunity, how important is product? And is a healthy business with a bad product something you're interested in too? Yeah, I think um, you don't want to have a bad product, but I think uh, there's a degree of badness. Okay. You also don't want to have a, a you know a bad business with a great product, right? That's that's the other extreme. I, I, what I what I see um, the most successful entrepreneurs do is is really walk that fine line between building something that they um, think is good and they obviously want to improve over time, but gives them the opportunity to grow and learn very quickly. Um, startups are all about time and money management, and really it's time management because money determines time. And so you want to have as many shots on goal as possible. Mm -hmm. So over-polishing, worrying too much about, um, you know, is this good enough, I, I think can sometimes be a hindrance. Now, on the other hand, you also don't want to put out crappy products. So what I look for, and I think is definitely true in the case of you know Intercom and um, companies like Slack and CultureAmp and, and Optimizely and Dropbox and um, other companies I've, I've invested in, um, are founders who understand what great products mean and are thoughtful enough to uh, make the trade-offs uh, to learn fast and grow quickly. And I think for Index in particular, you know, it's interesting to see both the European and the U.S. side of the world. And it's pretty amazing to see, I think for, for me at least in looking over time, how quickly people are able to build better products by learning from other companies. And that's something that uh, we try to do through um, community effort internally at Index. Uh, but also, I think, you know, you guys have achieved through podcasts like this. <laughs> the ability for people to really figure out great products and how to build them, I think, has never been better. And so back to your, kind of the beginnings of your question, you know, what do we look for? At the very early stages, I just want to know that people can build a product, right? That's sort of V1. Mm -hmm. You should be able to build a product. Uh, and hopefully through either what you've done before or how you think about products, you demonstrated the ability to think, you know, critically about what is a good product and what is not a good product. And you make a conscious choice as to how great of a product you, guilt, you build at any given point in order for you to get the information and, and reduce the risks in your company. Uh, at the later stages, hopefully you've built a product that people use, right? And then I think as a question of uh, can you build the commercial muscle? Can you figure out user growth? Can you figure out go to market? Um, can you do it effectively? If you're in the enterprise, can you figure out how to sell your product? Yeah. Right. Can you figure out how to communicate the value of this product to a broader set of users? And uh, you know, later at the very late stages, obviously, it's all about the traction. Right. That's a key point there, traction. So, uh, since a lot of our listeners are early stage and uh, raising around from the likes of Index might be a long way down the line, what kind of unit metrics or KPIs 
do you think they should focus on and get a handle on early so that they're able to show investors in the future that they do have traction? So first of all, it's good to have metrics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and I think obviously there's a core set of metrics that'll be particular to the domain that you're in. Um, you know, what we look for, uh, again, stage dependent, obviously, but very simple things. The, the most important thing to me is, you know, is, are people who have your product using it? Yeah. Right. Have you built a product that people actually use? It may not be the prettiest iteration of your product, but it has to be uh, an iteration that people are really, really using day in and day out, mm-hmm. and it's sticky. Because the worst scenario is you've invested a lot in building something, you put it out there, people try it, and, and they don't stick right. around. So engagement, re, you know, retention of users to me is is key. Uh, and then, you know, if you've done that for a small group of people, can you expand that audience? Right? Is there growth of that user base? Mm-hmm. And in, inside of that user base, is there potentially natural expansion on some dimension? It could be engagement, it could be revenue, it could be something else. But really, it's it's pretty simple. Do people like you know people interested in your product? Do they keep using it? Are there more of them? And how do we how do we juice that growth? Uh, with an investment. Right. Makes a lot of sense. Keep it simple. Um, all right. One more question for you, Ilya. Um, you know, you've been back in the game for more than a year now. What makes an Ilya Fishman company? I love Tenacious Founders. I mean, I think to me, the biggest thing is, um, in, in having worked with with Drew and Arash uh, and with the founders I work with now, whether it's uh, Owen uh, and Des and, mm-hmm. and folks at, at Intercom or, or Dan and Pete at Optimizely or um, Stuart at Slack, um, or, or folks in all of my portfolio companies, I think the one unifying uh, thing for all of them is that they have a big vision, and there are many reasons why their vision is very hard, uh, and there are many reasons why that probably won't work out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they uh, sort of see the long term, and they have this big long term arc in their head, and they're willing to take the long term view and really power through. To me, that's the most critical piece. You know, can you be tenacious, and can you uh, withstand the ups and downs, and then you know it's um, do you have do you have an amazing uh, idea and the ability to recruit a team at the early stage, and you know are you able to really um, reinvent yourself and evolve as a founder? Because if you think about it, you know get, you know company like Dropbox growing from you know fifty to fifteen hundred people when I was there, the amount of learning that you know individuals in the company had to do was was incredible, but the amount of learning that folks like Drew and Arash had to do was even bigger uh-huh. because they had to scale themselves to be able to manage this company and, and manage this business and manage the future of, of the company. And so I think that's the most critical thing is that you, do you have the potential to do that? And then do you have a critical eye for products or do you have a critical eye for talent? Or do you have something that, that makes you unique in terms of your ability to figure things out? Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Ilya. It's been really fun and I'm sure our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.